Um, hey, we're in First Kings 8. All right, let's do it. Let's jump in. Let me explain where we're at and what we're doing and why we're doing it. Uh, we're doing this series, Prophets and Kings, just trying to get very familiar with the story of Israel, uh, the story of how they became united under one king. Eventually, very soon, we're going to see it split into two kingdoms, sadly. Uh, the reason why this is important is in their story, we can see the gospel story in many ways. We can see our story. We can kind of see like the cyclical history of God calls people to himself. They get kind of their life in order. They're serving him, but then idols kind of rise up. They fall away. Judgment comes. Then they get their attention back to God. And we, there's a lot for us to learn and take away as we walk through this. Where we're at specifically in 1 Kings 8, if you were with us last week, we saw in chapter 6, Solomon finished building the temple. Like this is a big deal. Like this is something David longed to do. The temple is built. It's done. It's finished. It's everything Solomon, David, the people wanted. God has a, a home, not in a tabernacle that can kind of move anywhere, but like it's in a certain place in Jerusalem. It's there. God has like a final home in some ways in their mind. Like this is what they want. It's beautiful. In chapter 8, we see the Ark of the Covenant come in. And then here in our chapter that we're going to be studying, it's basically like a dedication and ceremony. The ark comes in, the people are celebrating, Solomon blesses the people, there's a lengthy prayer, uh, then we see him bless the people, and he blesses God, and then we see more sacrifices. The reason why I want to point this out to you today, uh, chapter 8's interesting. We've been seeing this in First and Second Samuel in different portions of scripture. This is written in the chiastic form. What that means is, we'll put it up, it kind of goes A, B, C, B, A. So here's the flow. You see celebration and sacrifice happening in the first 13 v verses. Then you see this blessing from Solomon or a benediction. Then this lengthy prayer from Solomon back to a benediction or a blessing and then more sacrifice uh, and celebration. So if you actually read chapter 8, it's kind of laid out very similarly. It's like the people are celebrating and praising God and he blesses prayer. He blesses back to celebrating and sacrificing. So this is kind of the layout or the structure. The reason why this is interesting, the chiastic former ABCBA for all the English teachers on it, the reason why this is interesting, it kind of draws your attention to the middle, which is the prayer. This idea of the, sac like the ark is brought in. We're celebrating. We're sacrificing to God. We're blessing the people of God. We're blessing God. We're, we're speaking forth a benediction, a blessing. But then there's this prayer in the middle. Now, up until, the point, up until this point, fun fact, this is the longest prayer in the Old Testament outside of Nehemiah 9. But Nehemiah happens after. So this is the longest recorded prayer, like chronologically speaking, working our way from Genesis to here at this point. This is the longest prayer we see in the Bible recorded in the Old Testament. The longest prayer ever is Nehemiah 9, then this prayer, and then the prayer in John 17 that Jesus prays. So this is a pretty significant passage. This is, the, again, the second longest prayer. And there's not just, it's not just because it's long, like it's long, it only takes a couple minutes to read. Um, but what we see is just really like a powerful layout of how do we pray? Who are we praying to? What does praying look like? Obviously, we could learn a lot from the way Solomon addresses God, the way Solomon calls on scripture, the way Solomon pleads with God, like, God, don't forget us. Please do this. There's a lot we can learn from this. And so in many ways, my, my hope today is that obviously this could affect and change how we pray. The title is simply Praying with Power, Praying with Power. Uh, the book of James chapter 5, you know this verse well. It's said different ways. It's interesting. It says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Another translation, I like this. It says, the effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. The effective, the effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. 
there's something about when the people of God come together and call upon God. There really is something unique, and I do want to talk about this, that God actually wants and is waiting for his people to pray, and then he moves. There's something really fascinating. Obviously, well, it brings up the question, would God have done it anyways? We can look at that. But there is something about when the people of God are like, we need to pray. This is actually the first time, too. It's interesting. We're told that he falls on his knees because he gets up at the end of this. So his arms are stretched out. He falls on his knees. This is the first person we see on their knees in prayer. But there's just something about this submission. God, we need you. God, we don't, we don't want to do this without you. We can't do this without you. We have a desperate need for you. He's reminding God of what God said. God, you said this. Please do this. Um, again, my hope, before just getting too much into this, is um, uh, we need to be a praying people. And there is a way to do something, and there's also a way to do something well. I know that might sound strange, right? Because I can get right now on the guitar and start strumming some strings, and it would be awful, right? <laughs> be awful. There's a way to do it, and there's a way to do it effectively. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man reveals much. The, there's something, there's a way to, so how do we pray? Lord, teach us to pray. That's the disciples' you know, question of Jesus. God, teach us. We want how to pray. I think we have a lot to learn from this prayer. Would you agree? Maybe we'll read it. You're like, I don't know yet. Maybe. Um, so let's do this. It's a lengthy prayer. I just want to pray and kind of just invite the Lord. And um, I'm just hoping that God shapes us and molds us. Because let's be honest, prayer is difficult at times. And um, I'm just praying that God helps us actually really believe again who it is we're praying to and uh, what it is we're praying for. So let's just, let's just pray. Ask the Lord to speak. Father, we just want to thank you that we can do this. God, every Sunday, this is such a privilege to just join in with all of heaven and the churches around the globe and cry out, worthy is the Lamb. It is such a privilege for us to be here, Jesus, when the, the saints gather together in your name. And we are here, Jesus, for you. We're here for you. Jesus, it is, you're, you have the name above all names. And we just ask that, God, you would speak, that you would move. Holy Spirit, that you would accomplish your work and your will in our lives. God, I do ask, I ask just like the early church experience, miraculous movings and healings, that Jesus, you do a fresh work in us again. Help us to believe, Lord. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I ask that you'd help us in this way. God, we're calling upon you that the God who spoke everything into his existence and speaking to us, Lord. God, create new life. God, I just ask that um, we'd walk away closer to you. In your precious name, amen. You know, we find ourselves in a place in life where we're trying to constantly um, model and teach our kids how to pray. You know, obviously having a seven-year-old and three-year-old and now eight-month-old, we're trying to invite them into prayer. It's a very tricky thing. If, you, if you're a parent, you might know this, but we're in this really weird stage where, you know, prayer is kind of becoming a fight in our home, which is not fun. It's kind of like miserable. I don't know why I keep doing this. I, this is my fault. Every time at dinner, like every night, I ask a dumb question. I say, I say who wants to pray? And then both my kids go, I do. And they both start immediately. They both say, I do. And they go, Jesus, thank you so much. And they both start praying at the same time. And they go, hey, I'm praying. It's like literally the same thing every night. They go, hey, I'm praying. Stop it. Shut up. And they're, they're like getting mad. Like, I'm like, ah. And then they start fighting. And it's my, my daughter always, I don't know, I've mentioned this, but I love it. She starts off every prayer with Jesus on knee. I don't know what she's saying, but it's the cutest thing now. And I can't, I, when, I, when I pray, I want to start saying Jesus on knee. That's what she does every time. It's the cutest thing. She goes, Jesus on knee. But she starts praying. Then my son starts praying. And he goes, he calls her baby. He's like, baby, I'm praying. You don't pray. And the prayer time turns into a fight. 
And then it's, oh, and you're like, wow, this is the pastor's home. Yeah, this is our home. And so then I'm like, guys, and like, I try to stop. I'm like, how about this? How about you pray first? They prayed first yesterday. And then if, again, if you're a parent, you get this. So it's really weird. Something that's supposed to be holy and spiritual and beautiful turns into like World War III. And they fight and punch and they separate and like they go to their rooms and they're like, no one's eating dinner. It's awful. This is like our routine. This is kind of stage we're in. And it is funny. You're like, it's so sweet. They want to pray. But I'll pull them aside and be like, hey, Micah, Kinsley, don't you think you just want to like, it, God just wants your prayer. It's so nice. Let the other person go first, isn't it? And they're like, no, it's not nice. I want to go first. And you're like, okay, but it's so good. Like the, the more mature person will let the other person go first. Well, they can go first then. I'm like, oh gosh. So nothing seems to work. But this is kind of the stage we're at. And it's, it's like beautiful because I love that they want to pray. But then again, it turns into a fight. You know, my son, even when you, you pray or you hear my daughter pray, it's so beautiful because you get to hear these like this sincere, this beautiful prayers. Like it's not really like they're trying to impress us. You know, it's so cute. My, my daughter, when she's praying at night in bed, like at bedtime, when she prays, um, it's just cute to hear her pray throughout her day. And she just kind of walks through her day. And she's like, and then grandma and grandpa picked me up and they brought me food. And she's like going through like her day. And then she, it's funny though, because Micah's listening during the bunk beds. And she's like, and Micah was naughty. He had to go to timeout. And he's like, stop talking like that. And like, <laughs> he yells, and it's like, this is, I'm like, she throws shade out of her brother in prayer. And I'm like, ah, oh. you know, adults still do that. Like, oh God, help their marriage. Like, that's gossip. And she's doing that right now and it's just like it's fun to watch and see it cultivating and growing and um i might have mentioned this before but i just thought it was so cute i was like looking through just passive journals and reading some stuff and um micah one day pulled me aside and he said dad dad can i tell you my secret prayer and i'm like yeah what's your secret prayer he's like come here i get close and i wrote it down i had to read it he goes this is my secret prayer thank you for everything in the world oh in jesus name amen and I'm like, that's your secret prayer? He's like, yeah. It's like, cover all my bases. Like, <laughs> thank you for everything in the world. But in Jesus, make sure you say that tag. I'm like, oh yeah. Um, it's just so funny. And that's his perspective right now. And it's okay. I feel like, you know, when you, as an adult even, I've, you know, we've been in meetings and we've been with people where it's like, oh, I don't pray well. And you're like, you don't pray well. Just talk to God. And you, we're trying to say, what does it mean? What does it look like to pray? And how do we grow in prayer? And let's be honest, prayer is difficult. Like the act of praying at times is incredibly difficult. There's been different seasons in my life where like, yes, it's been sweet. It's been beautiful. I can kind of get to that place and kind of shut down quickly. There's times like right now where the house is loud and there's chaos and it's like hard to get to that place where you can go, Lord, I just feel like I'm actually not just talking, but I'm meeting with you. Like I'm entering into a dialogue with you. And so what is prayer? And what does this look like? I like what one author, uh, John Climacus, said. He says, when you pray, do not try to express yourself in fancy words. Do not strive for verbosity, lest your mind be distracted by a search for words. Sometimes, that, some, sometimes the simplest prayers are so beautiful, so necessary. Like, yes, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous person has great power. Like, yes. But sometimes it, it, it's so beautiful. Like, let my words be few. And I just want to kind of invite us to say, God, help us be a praying people. You know, it's hard because, again, like when we say, hey, we want to start praying on Sunday mornings, will you join us? And I get their schedules and there's busyness. And when we try to pray as volunteers, it can kind of be, you know, we're catching up a little bit. And that's all fine. But how do we actually become a people that's like, no, God, we know we can't do this without you. And we know the way in which we meet with you is through this, this, this tool called prayer. And we, we're calling upon you because we desperately need you. And so here's what I see in this text, and here's what we're going to walk through. Um, it's a, like I said, it's the longest prayer so far in the Bible. It, it, there's a lot there. And I, there's kind of two things that are clear to me that I want to break it up for you. Here's the first thing. We're going to see one is perspective. Know who you're talking to. And the second thing is petitions. Know what you're asking for. 
So here's what we're going to see kind of when it comes to prayer. Perspective. We need perspective in prayer. We need to know who we're talking to. And when we have petitions or requests, we really should think through what, we're, what it is we're praying for. And how do we make these petitions or these requests known to God? There are actually seven petitions, and it's really clear in the text. There are seven different things, and many authors argue it's like this idea of completion for Solomon and the temple, and here's the seven things he wants the temple to be. Here's how he wants God to move and work amongst his people. So you're going to see, again, this perspective. He's like, God, this is who you are. There's no one like you. And you're going to see him kind of walk through how that is. And then you're going to see him be like, here's my request, though. I do have some requests. We're told to make our requests known to God. He's like, I do have some requests, but they're all backed by scripture. They're all backed by what, what your will already is for us. And so here's kind of what he's walking through. So first point again, we're gonna see perspective. Number two, we're gonna see petitions. Cool, you guys ready? Let's kind of read the first point, the first like eight verses. Perspective, know who you're coming to. All right, let's read verse 22. Verse 22, sacrifices happen, ark is brought in. He blesses the people. Verse 22, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. And he spread his hands toward heaven. Second Chronicles 6 tells us he's on his knees. And said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love. Remember that word, steadfast love? What's the word? Does anyone remember? Hased, yes, this covenantal love. This kindness that we have with you, this unfailing love, you'll never fail us. You've shown us a said, this covenantal love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Verse 24, you have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your son pay close attention to the way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant, David, my father. But this is what he says in verse 27, so profound. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. Everyone say amen. How much less this house that I have built Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel. And when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear forgive. All right. First of all, perspective. Know who you're talking to. Know who you're praying to. Notice how he begins. Notice how he addresses God. This is very important. Verse 22, I'll just put the phrase up here again. Verse 22, uh, he simply says, oh, or verse 23, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. There is something about prayer that it's just, we need to remind ourselves, who am I talking to right now? Who am I coming to right now? I mean, you're coming to the one who has all of the authority, who spoke and the worlds were created. We're coming to someone who there's no one, no one is in God's category. It's not like you have God and you have Satan, like in God, not even close. He's a created being. No one's in God's category. No one's like you, God. You're far above us. Who are we? Who's man that you're mindful of him as David would write in Psalm 8? Who am I? God, there's just no one like you. 
this is how so often we see uh, prayers begin. It's just, and this is such a beautiful thing. When we pray, do we take a deep breath and be like, do I understand who I'm coming to right now? Do I understand that I'm talking to a God who is far above, but he's also right here in our midst? He's not just high above, but he can hear. He's with me. This is something absolutely profound. We have to recognize who we're coming to. Actually, this is very similar to Acts 4 when the church was kind of just birthed and Peter and John are being beaten up you know, near the temple and they're released and the early church comes together and actually they, they're praying to God. They say something very similar in Acts 4.24. We'll put the verse up here. They say, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. It's very similar to what just Solomon just prayed. God, you made everything. This is you. No one's like you, God. Now, I want to point this out because this is important. In verse 22 through like 53 in the text today, uh, 12 times we'll see this, these words in Hebrew and for us in English, we'll see these words in heaven, in heaven. You're God in heaven, in heaven. God, you're in heaven. Will you hear us in heaven? And I want to just put that phrase out, in heaven, in heaven. When Jesus told us how to pray in Matthew 6 or uh, Luke 11, what did, he, what did he tell us to do? Say, our Father in heaven. Solomon is like really the, establishing this very clearly. You're in heaven. I'm not. There's just something about even knowing just where God, not just is, but the idea of in heaven communicates, God, you're high above. There's, there's no one on your level. I love the our father in heaven because our father communicates this beautiful idea of like, hey, come to him. Like he's your dad. Like he wants you to come to him. Like you can come to him boldly, come to, boldly to the throne of grace. It, it does always amaze me when you think of someone who has a lot of power or authority, like maybe a CEO or a president type of person, and the children, like no one has access, they have to get on their calendar, but the child can just walk in. God's like, hey, that's what the kind of access you have. It's not like, oh, I'm going to schedule you into my calendar. God's like, come on, come on into my presence. So he's our father, but he's also in heaven. And there's this beautiful blend of like, hey, he's your father, but don't forget he's God. Like we can't have this kind of flippant attitude, you know, towards God. Sometimes we do have like this Jesus is my homeboy mentality. And we kind of like, the way we speak about God, I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I love that. Sometimes like, is that just where you're really close and relational? Or is that like, I don't know, heretical? Like, at what point are you like, you're kind of losing that sense of awe and wonder that he is in heaven. You know, Solomon actually said this in Ecclesiastes. So think about this phrase in heaven 12 times. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 5 too. He says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. It's like, don't forget who you are. Sometimes like men, women, we can talk a big game, and you're like, do you understand that God could just be like, I'm like done. Like, right? like, it's like, he's in heaven. They're, they're, we're really told, and you know, this is a quote, like, don't fear anything but fear itself, or whatever. We're told to have just the fear of the Lord. Like, okay, do not, do not, you know, Jesus said, don't fear man. Man, they can destroy your body. God can destroy both your body and your soul. Like, fear God. And that's not in the sense of like, God wants to crush you. Okay, I'm not trying to, but there's a sense of like, no, he's our father. Beautiful. Thank you, God. But you're also God. I need to approach you with some sense of awe and wonder. And luckily, like in heaven means, don't think you can understand him. Don't think you'll ever be like, oh God, I got, I can put him in this little box. That's what Solomon's going to mention. He said, God, man can't keep you in a temple. How dare I try to like put you in big, I understand God. It's like, you know, even when we talk to people and it's like, oh no, I've read the Bible. I'm good. I'm like, so you know God. You know the infinite God. The God who you cannot know with your finite mind. Yeah, I know him. Mm. <laughs> That's why there's a sense of worship in this. That's why prayer kind of reveals just a lot of worship. It's like, if we could understand God, obviously he wouldn't be worthy of our worship. There's a side of us like, God, you're high above. You're in heaven. I'm on earth. This idea of let my words be few, like maybe we shouldn't come so flippantly. Come boldly, but not flippantly. Let's come boldly to the throne of grace. And it is a throne of grace. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you that right now your throne is a throne of grace. 
When you read Revelation, it seems like it's a throne of judgment. Right now, it's a throne of grace. Come now. It's a throne of grace. Come to this throne of grace. He goes, hey, in heaven, God, there's no one like you. You're in heaven. And notice what he does. He starts basically talking to God about the promises he made to his father. And I want to put the verse up. Verse 25, because this is significant to me. Verse 25, David says, O Lord, God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. Um, A simple way of just putting this is this, pray scripture. Pray God's word. He's like, hey God, I want to quote what you said to my father, that no one would lack, there would never be a mac- uh, lacking sitting on the throne. God, you promised this. God, you said this. If you're like, I don't know what to pray for, open up the Bible and read the scripture and like, talk the scripture back to God. There's something so powerful about that. Like, hey God, you said this. You said whom the sun sets free is free indeed, and I, I need freedom right now, God. I'm going to hold you to your word. I actually really believe the Lord like, loves that. It's not necessarily, like, it's like, almost like, God, you said this. I'm coming to you in belief that it, this is what you want. Hey, he's like, hey, Father, this is, God, this is what you said to my dad, now do it. David Mathis, an author, said this. He says, prayer, this is so good. He says, prayer for the Christian is not merely talking to God, but responding to the one who has initiated toward us. He has spoken first. This is not a conversation we start, but a relationship into which we've been drawn. His voice breaks the silence. Thank you, Lord. He says, then in prayer, we speak to the God who has spoken. Our asking and pleading and requesting originate not from our emptiness, but his fullness. Prayer doesn't begin with our needs, but with his bounty. Its origin is first in adoration and only later in asking. And this is what he's doing. Before he gets to the, pet- to the petitions, really, he's saying, God, there's no one like you, and God, you've spoken, and God, I'm just asking you to do what you've spoken. But it's like, stay true to this, Lord. I want it to be you. God, you're the one, like, I didn't come to you. You came to us. You promised us. So God's always the initiator. And that's such a beautiful thing. Like, don't think you're the one who ever sought God. You ever went to God first. Like, no, no, he, he sought us out first. He spoke to us first. He broke the silence. It's not like on a first date, you're like sitting there, and you're like, who's going to ask the first question? Or I don't know. But you're like, God's like, hey, let me go. I'm going to you. I'm speaking to you. And Solomon's like, in light of that, will you do what you just said? You said you'd do this. Here we are this day dedicating the temple to you. Hey, you said no one ever lacks it on my father's throne. God just do what you've said. I'm, I'm talking about your word. Um, in 1 John 5, this is so brilliant. It's about prayer. It's about the same idea. Maybe you've read this verse. Like, what is this? 1 John 5, 14 says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. It's really interesting. Obviously, this verse, maybe you've heard this. Maybe it's been abused before in certain circles, but there's something so beautiful about this. He goes, if you ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Okay, what's according to his will? I would say scripture. I would say the Bible. So pray the Bible. There's something beautiful about, hey, Lord, I know you want my neighbor, my family member, my friend. I know that your desire is that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. I'm asking that you draw this person to you. I'm asking it. I'm asking God, this is your heart. This is your will. Your will is that none should pray. I'm going to pray that, again, specifically for this. Here's the thing. We're going to get to this idea of, like, does prayer affect things? Absolutely. Obviously it does. Or God would not ask us to do it. But before we get to that, there's just something about saying, if I'm going to ask anything, I'm going to ask according to his will. Listen, he hears you. Do you believe that he hears you? Sometimes when I pray with people, I'm like, do you actually believe God's listening right now? Even when I'm praying, I'll be praying. I'm like, do I actually believe he's listening to me right now? <laughs> like, I'll, I'll say something so kind of like, I don't know, automatically, like on repeat, like, God, thank you for this day. It's like so ridiculous. 
And someone's like, wait, he actually hears me. And he actually wants to listen to like, the, the cries of my heart. And he wants me to align my will with his will. And so how do I align my will with his will? I've got to get to know his will. So what, what, God's, what's, what is your will? Oh, your will is that I offer my body as a living sacrifice to, to you? And then, like, that he's like, and then you pray that scripture back to God? Like, hey, Lord, I, I want to I do this. And God's like, please, and it's beautiful. And I'm just saying, pray scripture. If you don't know where to start, best place you can start and, and finish is scripture. P- pray scripture. Don't just make Bible reading or prayer like this, like, I don't know, separate thing, or like I prayed, I read. Make it this beautiful, like, conversation you're entering into with God. Like, in the morning, I have to be like, okay, Lord, I really want to hear from you, and I really want to know what it is your will for today. And I have to, like, sometimes purposely stand back and be like, I can just kind of go through, I read that passage and I prayed. But like, Lord, what is, what is it that you're doing? What is it you want me to see today? And here's what I'm reading. Okay, help me carry this out today. And if you can make it into like this beautiful divine dance where it's not just like check read, check prayed, but you realize God is speaking and I'm speaking back and it's not this monologue from God or a monologue from me, but it's this beautiful dialogue. That's what prayer can be. It is so beautiful. It's so there. And notice what he says in verse 27. Verse 27 is so profound. We kind of did this last week, so I won't spend too much time on this. But he says in verse 27, he says, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. You know, this is actually like a trap I think that, you know, Solomon's great, 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 great grandchildren fell into. Like, this is it. God's here and only here. Like, yes, in a very unique way, God met with the people of Israel and the nations through the temple in Jerusalem. Absolutely, that's very true. But then we forgot what Solomon prayed. Like we forgot, God, this building and structure cannot contain you. This cannot hold you. In fact, as we looked at last week, we now know that God lives and dwells in us, right? We are the new temple. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit in which God dwells. So that is a fact. That's what Paul's like, hey, you're the new temple. God now dwells and lives in you. Absolutely beautiful. But there's something profound about this. He goes, God, you're transcendent. Nothing can contain you. I can't put God in a box. And sometimes we do want to do that in our faith. Like God can only work in this way and he'll never work outside of that way. Like really? Wow. I didn't know your God could fit in that, that my God can't fit in that. That's something so beautiful about scriptures. Like God, we try to make God fit into maybe our worldview or this is the theology we grew up with and this is the church kind of structure we grew up with. So only God can do this. I'd be like this. Know that you can't contain him. Know that he's transcendent. And, and I love this, know that he's imminent. Here's what I mean by that. God is high above all, but he's also among us. If you guys remember our Attributes of God series, we kind of did like a year ago now, which is crazy, but we did talk about God's transcendence, that there is no one like God. God is in a league of his own, a category of his own. God is high above us, but he's also among us. That is the unique thing about scripture, that God, like God's transcendent, but he's imminent. What that means is, we'll put the simple like definitions um, up here, imminent, or, you know, transcendent means he's overall, imminent means he's through all and in all. It's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.6. In Ephesians 4.6, it says, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He's over all, transcendent. He's through all and in all. He's imminent. We have this beautiful, like, complimentary thing of God is far above, but he's, he's here. He's near. I love this. This should change how we pray. You're in heaven, but you're here. You're in heaven, but you're among us. John Tyson so beautifully said, and I, I, you have to hear this. He says, unless you break the stronghold of false images of God in your mind, you'll never be drawn to prayer. Please hear that. You'll never be drawn to prayer unless you break the stronghold of false images of God in your mind. 
the angels have been locked in a room with God for thousands of years, and they still haven't gotten past the word holy. Holy, holy, holy. If you're bored with God, you may be the person who is boring. (laughs) Or it could be that you're just distracted by trivia in our culture. When you break through that boredom, you'll be drawn to the glory of who God really is. (laughs) I love that. They're like, we can't get over this word holy. We're just going to sing it for a little bit longer of eternity. Like, where, where do we begin? You know, I think also, by the way, you know, I think as a kid, when you were talking about heaven, you're like, do I just sing all day? It sounds so terrifying. I don't know. As a kid, maybe as an adult, you're like, ah, that sounds awful. Okay, worship is, is not just singing, obviously, but it, 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 it is that, but it's that and more. Like, yes, we'll sing. Yes, we'll praise. Yes, we'll join in with heaven. Like, these heavenly creatures, the foreheads, like, you're reading these creatures, like, I'll be sitting next to them, like, hey, buddy, <laughs> we worship this guy. Oh, no. It'll be unbelievable experience that we'll see. And, I don't know. But there's a side of it that you're like, but it's so much more than that. Obviously, worship is not just something we sing. It's something we live out. We can, we can eat and drink as a form of worship. We can do that for the glory of God. There's something so beautiful about that. But I love this thought of like, the, like if you're getting bored with prayer, maybe you're the boring one. Maybe you haven't really thought about who God is and what he's really like. Maybe you haven't actually entered into the idea of like, God, here's what you've done for me specifically. Like, here's what you say about me. Maybe you haven't explored the vastness of God, the infiniteness of God. That is something I think we need to enter into when we pray because it can be boring. And again, the problem's not with God at that point. It can be something where our brain checks out and we're not bringing it into our focus. Who is it that I'm talking to right now? Someone's like, God, I can't put you in this temple. I can't fit you in this box. You're transcendent, but you're also imminent. You're, you're among us. I love what uh, Amanda says about this idea of transcendent and imminent. Just Amanda Jenkins, here's what she said. God's imminence and his tra- transcendence are both reasons for humanity to worship him. Humanity worships the imminence of God because the creator God of the universe has made himself noble to humanity. He's made himself noble. Humanity worships the trans- God, the transcendent God, because they understand that he is the creator and sustainer of the universe, the originator of life and every good fit, and that he is bigger and greater than anything they will ever have the ability to comprehend. He's both. It's absolutely necessary to know he's both. Now, there's this unique phrase in verse 29 where God's like, my name is going to be there in Jerusalem on that temple. Um, There's actually a really fun fact. I'm going to save it, like shelf it. But this idea of the name of God written on Jerusalem actually seems to be in a literal sense, but I'll save that thought. But here's what he says. Look at verse 29. My name shall be there that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. What does that mean? My name shall be there. There is something about the name of God. First of all, we, you guys might know this, but you ever see capital L-O-R-D, that's not necessarily the name of God. That's like the Hebrew consonants. That's like Y-H-V or W-H. So we're not really sure what the name of God is. Is it Yehovah, Yahweh, Yahweh, Vavheh? There's so many different ideas. Like, what is the name of God? We don't know. But what does it mean? Is it about the actual technical name? Or what does that name stand for? So the name of Jesus, when, when, when the angel appears to Joseph and Mary and says, hey, you should call his name Jesus, which means Yeshua, you should call his name Jesus. Why? He shall save his people from their sins. What is the name of Jesus? The name Jesus is the idea that God's like, I have come to save. So the name of God is the idea that there's so much more wrapped up in it. Obviously, there's so many different names of God, and I'm not going to go through all of those, but there's something about the name of God that says, I'm everything you need. I am Jehovah Rapha. I'm Jehovah Jireh. I'm, I'm, I'm the God who saves. What is it you need? This idea of his name being there is basically saying, the access you have to me is in my name. Because think about this. In this time and in our time, there's so many different names or gods you call upon. This idea of like a polytheistic culture that they're in or a pantheistic culture that they're in. You have the God of the sky, the God of the air, the God of fire, or God is everything. 
But then we have this idea that, no, that we have a mono, there's one God, one God who eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it's this bizarre thing where we go, what? We worship God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And it's not one plus one plus one, it's one times one times one, answers one. But this idea of the name of God is we come to him and say, we're calling upon you. There's one God, one God, and it's in your name we have salvation. It's in your name we have life and life everlasting. That's why Jesus says in John 14, he says, if you ask anything, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is another verse that, about prayer, I think that it's abuse. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. So Mike and my son has that mindset. Just tag on in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, give me some new toys in Jesus' name, amen. I said it. It's like, no, it's not this magic phrase. What does it mean in Jesus' name? What does it mean that my name is there? It means I'm praying again according to him, his nature, his attributes, his character, his will. Like his name, what does his name stand for? What, is, what does he want? What, in his name, the idea is like your name, your name has something attached to it. It has a good reputation, bad reputation. There's something attached to your name. There's something attached to the name of God. I'm the God who wants everyone who, be, who lives to be saved. Second Peter 3, 9. I'm the God who loves you and cares. So the idea is his name is written there and he's saying, praying in my name, coming in my name, my will, my character, not outside of my name, not outside of the way I am. Don't do it outside of that. That's not going to work. So Jesus is saying, ask anything, ask anything according to my, in my name, you will receive it. It's like in my name, like who I am, my will, my desire. It's not something we abuse and think Jesus has to now answer it. It's saying, I want to do it according to you and your name and everything you stand for. I hope that makes sense. John Woodhouse said, true praying is only possible when our requests are joined to his name. It's only possible when your requests are joined to his name what it is you're asking for in his name. So here's the idea. Who are you talking to? You're talking to God who's high above, who cannot be contained. We worship one God who eternally exists, who loves you and cares for you. He's transcendent, but he's among you. It's unbelievable. Then we see number two are these petitions. And we're going to work fairly quickly through these petitions. There are seven petitions, all right, that he has. And think about it this way. These petitions are kind of all associated with the temple. Like what's the point of the temple? Their sacrifices, the forgiveness of sins. What is the point? So you're going to notice that like five out of the seven petitions have to do with sins being forgiven or reconciliation because that's the purpose of the temple. The purpose of the temple is deal with your sin. The purpose of the temple is be reconciled to God. And so a lot of them have to do with that. All right, so let's look at the first one. Can we do that? You guys ready? Verse 31, here's the first one. Just in case you're following along, the first petition is a, a petition or a prayer for justice. A prayer for justice. This is what he's praying for. Look at verse 31. He says, now, here's his request. You, you can actually see it in your Bible. Like, they break it up because they're trying to show you these seven requests that go in line with Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, but we'll just read it. He says, if a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your, your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. God, when we don't know what to do, we need you to be just. When we don't know who's guilty and we don't know who's innocent, can you, be, can you be the one, the just judge? Remember when God gave Solomon wisdom, the first act was basically executing justice among two women. My baby died. No, my baby, your baby died, whatever. That story, this idea of like God bring us justice. Solomon's going, the temple, the purpose of the temple is God bring justice. This is fascinating. I don't want to move on from this. Justice is so beautiful and so from God. We would not know justice apart from God. It's impossible to know justice apart from God. 
We have to know what God says about this. Look at this, Isaiah 61.8. I, the Lord, love justice. There is countless, and I mean countless verses on the justice of God. We have to understand this church that the world, our cultural moment that we're in, did not create justice. It should not be the great advocator for justice as much as us. We would agree and say probably our definition of justice and the world's definition of justice is different. But does that mean we don't fight for justice? Does that mean we just kind of dismiss it? Absolutely not. We must be people who care about the temple is good God. When we don't know what to do in a matter of justice, we need you to be just. He says, I, the Lord, love justice. We're told over and over again how God is a just God. I love what Tim Keller says about this. You're probably waiting for my Keller quote. Here it is. He said, listen, so good. He goes, biblical justice differs in significant ways from the secular alternatives without ignoring the concerns of any of them. Yet Christians know little about biblical justice, despite its prominence in the scriptures. This ignorance is having two effects. I agree. First, large swaths of the church still do not see doing justice as part of their calling as individual believers. Second, many younger Christians recognizing this failure of the church and wanting to rectify things are taking up one or another of the secular approaches to justice, which introduces distortions into their practice and lives. So we're we're going, oh, we're seeing justice being used and thrown around, and so we either ignore it because we're sick of it, or we kind of embrace maybe the secular definition of justice is no longer God's definition of justice. Where God actually tells us not to show more justice to the poor than even to the wealthy. Where God's like, you can actually distort justice. It's possible for us to miss that. So we can't shy away from it, and we can't embrace the culture's language for justice. So what do we do? We're going to try to do justice as best as we can. To the best of our, way, our knowledge. In prayer, in humility, in love, in grace. With the goal of reconciliation, to reconcile the world to God. We have to do this. We are so about this. We have to be about this. I want to ask you to pray through what does that look like for us, but the church has, we're told to do this. We're told to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God, right? It's like, ah, do justice. That's, you know, that generation is a new, no, that's us. It's something if we forsake it, it will be brought into a, 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 a different way and not in the way I think God designed. Basically, the first prayer is, God, let this place, let this temple be a place of justice. We're not going to always get it right. God, you get it right. Can I tell you, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we will not always get The world will not get it right. Our judicial system will not always get it right. But God will get it right. And know what's a humbling thing is, listen, when I'm wrong, I want justice. When you're wrong, you want justice. But when you wrong someone, you want mercy. <laughs> and we're so hypocritical in that way. And I, I don't know, there's this weird thing of, I think that only the cross of Jesus satisfies that need. Where you go, God, I want justice. But I also want mercy. And I think at the cross of Jesus, the only, those are the only way those two things are reconciled. Because sin was paid for. Sin was paid for. It wasn't ignored. It wasn't overlooked. God didn't just wink at it and be like, no big deal. No, God had to die for it. God had to go, that's a big deal. I'm sorry. But I'll die for it. And now you get to benefit from it. And I think the cross is the only thing that makes justice make sense. No, it's crazy because, when we, yes, the Lord is just. But here's Romans 4, 5. God, it says this, Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Though obviously, there's a greater context, but notice that. He's basically saying you're not saved by your works, you're saved by your faith. And the one who believes in him who God justifies the ungodly. You want justice, but notice this. Um, if you got justice, that would be terrifying. If you got justice for your lifestyle, that would not be good. God's like, oh, you want justice? You want me to give you that? No, please, God, no. Show me mercy. God who justifies the ungodly. 
So I'm so thankful that if you call upon him, you will be saved. I'm so thankful that though I wronged him time and time again, he forgives me. Hey, Jesus, if a man sins against us, should we forgive him like seven times? No, 70 times seven. What? Lose count. Forget. How many times have you wronged God and God's like, and I'll still show you grace and forgiveness and mercy. How dare us go, ah, you passed the threshold. It's seven. You're done. You're done. So many times. No, thank you, God. I, of course, God cares about justice. We will probably not see it the way we want to see it, but we must fight for it. must be about it. It doesn't mean ignore it. It's not a good, that's not a good answer either. But we must go to God's definition of justice, and God justifies the ungodly. We should extend grace to that person because hopefully, hopefully they'll also be part of that. Because listen, I want, I want justice, but I really want mercy more. And I'm sure you do as well. Um, the house must be the house of justice. That's his first prayer. His first prayer is a prayer for justice. We'll move on. We'll probably spend less time on the next couple. Uh, number two is this, a prayer for rescue. Look at verse 33, prayer for rescue. So it's another request. Hey, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, <laughs> hey God, when we lose, I love that. He's like assuming, notice that, when? Hey God, when we're like dumb and we sin and we lose the battle, <laughs> he says, uh, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. Number two is a prayer for rescue. He's like, hey God, we're gonna sin, but if we turn to you, will you just please restore us? I just remember us. I love this. This is a prayer Jesus prayed in Matthew 6, right? He says, but deliver us from the evil one. And they're like, hey, when our enemies come against us, God, deliver us. Hey, rescue us. Um, we should be praying this. God, we're going to blow it, but we deliver us from the evil, the evil one, the enemy who wants our defeat. He wants you to lose. He wants you to cave in. You do have an enemy. An enemy. You have an adversary, the devil, who walks around like a roaring lion trying to devour your life. You have an enemy. And when you fail and when you fall, know this, you also have a deliverer. And he says, hey, God, deliver us from our enemy. That's basically what he's praying. That's what Jesus prayed. Deliver us from the evil one. When we fail, when we fall, that does not define you. We have a deliverer. We have someone who says, the enemy might come after you. Though a righteous man falls, he gets back up again. You have a deliverer. Number two, there's a prayer for rescue. Number three, we're going to see a prayer for provision. Look at verse 35. Verse 35. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. When you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance, a prayer for provision. Hey God, when there's no more rain because of our sin, notice a lot of it has to do with sin. Because of our sin and there's a drought, God, when we turn and repent, please let there be rain again. Let there be restoration. So here's the idea. You will have droughts in your life. Repent, and times of refreshing will come. There will be droughts. There will be seasons where like, there's no rain. Probably, and this, and no, I'm speaking like figuratively, probably when you feel like, God, why is there a drought spiritually? Why do I feel so dry? Repent, and times of refreshing will come. He's praying for God's provision in that way. God provide rain in the seasons of drought. Number four, a prayer for deliverance. Look at verse 37. Verse 37. If there's famine in the land, if there's pestilence or blight or mildew or locusts or caterpillar, that can be bad. If their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render uh, to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land 
that you gave to our fathers, a prayer for deliverance. This is such a sweet, there's so much insight in this one. God, you and you only know the hearts. That is the most terrifying thing when you think about that. I love when I talk to Christians and I'm like, so what's God in your life? Like, I think I'm going to move here. or This isn't going very well, but you know what? God knows my heart. And it's like, yeah, it's really wicked. It's not like, we always say in a positive way, God is my heart. I'm like, yeah, it's, what do you mean by that? Like, yes, it's not good. That's, is that what you're saying? All right, we know what John 17, or Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked or desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Notice that he even prays that in verse 9, it goes, God, render it to, to each whose heart you know according to all his ways, according to his deeds. God's like, yeah, I'm going to render to each one according to his deeds. The cross, again, is that thing that goes, Lord, thank you for rendering according to someone else's deeds. But also know that there's still an accountability that 2 Corinthians 5 talks about. There's still, we still do give an account for our life. We still do give an account for our heart. There's a, this, basically, this text is saying, Lord, search my heart. Know my heart. God, you search the hearts of men. Only you know the heart. There's something about God. Can you, do you know this? Do you know that God wants your heart? We always think that God's like, what does God want from me? He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants a heart that's pure and devoted to him. A heart that says, I'm not going to fall prey to a new idol every single day that pops up in my life. God, I want you to have my heart above all. So the, the fourth thing was a prayer for deliverance. We'll keep going. Number five is a prayer for outsiders. A prayer for outsiders. Number five, we're making our way, like I promise, right? Look at, the, look at the verse 41. It says, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. Do you guys realize that this is us, by the way? This is us. This is a prayer for us. Hey, when they hear from far away, how about how great you are? When he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as, as, as do as your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. He's praying for the foreigner, the outsider. Don't forget, this was not supposed to just be a Jewish religion. This, the whole idea was like, I want you to be a light on a hill to draw all people, all nations to me. Like Jesus in John 17, when he's praying for his disciples, what does he do? He begins to pray for us, for all those who will one day believe. This is that same kind of prayer and heartbeat. He's like, I'm praying for all the foreigners who one day will believe in your name. Like, we worship the God of Israel. We worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We worship the God who walked among us. His name is Yeshua, Jesus. We worship that God. And this, we're benefiting from this, that prayer. Like, that all people would come and call upon your great name. Isaiah uh, 49 says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That was the hope and prayer and goal for Israel. Israel, it's not because you're so special that I chose you. In fact, you're weak. He's like, I chose you so you could be a light to all nations, that salvation may go to the ends of the earth. Trust me, from when this was written to here we are in South Florida, we're part of the ends of the earth. We're part of like, yes, this is for everyone who will one day believe, for the foreigner, that we call upon the same God and say God is great. Number five, there's a prayer for the outsiders. Number six, a prayer for victory. Verse 44, here we go. If your people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. This is a prayer for victory. God, give us victory in these moments from enemy. We need victory. 
First um, John 5 is so beautiful. It talks about how you and I have victory in this world. How do we have victory? Please don't lose sight of this. First John 5, 4. Listen to what he says. Here's your victory. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except him, except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? He goes, this is your victory. What's victory? What gives you victory? Your faith. Your faith. Your faith in who? The Son of God. Do you want victory? Do you feel like I'm losing? I'm losing everything. I'm losing my battle. I'm losing this. If you feel like you're losing, victory is found in your faith. But faith in what? Not just blind faith, but faith in Jesus, the Son of God. His victory is your victory. His good work, his fulfillment, him saying it is finished is you receiving that. Your victory is your faith in the Son of God. That is victory. Victory is faith in the Son of God. I love this. You have this. We on the marriage retreat this weekend, by the way, it's really fun. Uh, we were talking and the pastor was talking and he said something so profound, it fits really well. He's basically saying our life verse to describe uh, marriage, raising children, everything that we're like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do marriage. I don't know how to do kids. I don't know how to do work and life. And I don't know what to do here. He's like, our verse has been Second Chronicles 20 with Jehoshaphat. And I want to read the verse. Second Chronicles 20 verse 12. Jehoshaphat was being attacked by the Moabites. They're about to lose everything. And Jehoshaphat, great name, by the way. Everyone say Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, isn't that a fun name? You should name your kid Jehoshaphat. Um, he says, Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles 20, 12. He says, for we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. The Moabites are coming and they're like, ah, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This is your victory. I don't know what to do. What do I do here? Our eyes are on you. Our faith. We're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. See, this is our victory. I don't know what to do here. Like, what, what are you doing? About, I don't know. But my eyes are on you. And that, that's the idea of like, what is your victory that you have? So he's, he's praying, God, give us victory over enemy. When we don't know what to do, our eyes are on you. What a great slogan, right? Number seven, here's the last one. A prayer for restoration, verse 46 through 53. Let's just read this. We'll close with this. Number seven. He says, if they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin. <laughs> do you guys know that? There's no one who does not sin. And you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. This is what's going to happen very soon to them. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you've chosen and the house that I've built for your name. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause, verse 50, and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carry them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Verse 52, let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people, Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you, you separated from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage as you declared through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, our Lord God. Number seven, a prayer of restoration. By the way, this is fascinating. We're about to get to this very soon. In chapter 11, Solomon's life falls apart. Chapter 12, you have Rehoboam and Jeroboam, Israel's one kingdom. And we're about to get to part two, which is kingdom divided. 
kingdom united right now, but about to be kingdom divided. Here's what you have. You have the northern Israel with the ten tribes. You have southern Israel with two tribes. And you have the temple in the southern part. But here's what's interesting. The Syrians overtake northern Israel, and they go first. Then years later, the Babylonians take southern Israel. And they're both held captive. Like, they're out of their land. They're out of, so here's what actually he's praying for. He's like, when we sin, and when other nations come and take us prisoners, and we're slaves in their land, if they say we have been perverse in our heart, and we have dealt wickedly, God, please forgive us and bring us back to the land. And God does that. This is, what's, this is the story they're going to play out. They're going to do exactly what he prayed. They're going to sin against them. Northern tribe goes into Assyria. Southern tribe goes into Babylon. They're going to be like, God, we repent, forgive us. And we're told, you know, whether it's Jeremiah, whether it's Daniel, hey, 70 years in Babylon captivity, at the end of 70 years, you'll be released. Nehemiah is going, I think 70 years is almost up. And they go back. And they go back and they rebuild. But this is what's so cool. He's praying for this. Like, so all the future kind of like Old Testament books we'll we, we, we get to, when you see that, you see like, oh, what Solomon praying for is going to be fulfilled. Actually, it's fulfilled a couple places. Daniel 1.9, I actually want you to read this because I want you to see the big picture. Daniel 1.9 says, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Favor and compassion. Is that not what he prayed for? He goes, God, give us compassion in their eyes. Give us compassion. Daniel 1.9, it's fulfilled. I want you to see what he prayed for comes to pass. May they show us compassion and they showed Daniel compassion. It happened with Nehemiah in Nehemiah 1.11. Nehemiah says, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, the king. And what does he get? Mercy in the sight of the king. Here's why I'm saying this. Does prayer work? Absolutely. Does that mean it'll be easy? Absolutely not. It, what we see is we're going to be taken captive because of our sin, but God have mercy on us when we're in that land, when they have mercy on us. And God's like, I will. I will. Would God have been mercy? Merciful? If he didn't pray this, probably. But I'm really glad he prayed it. <laughs> like, my thing is, like, would God have done it if he didn't pray? I don't know. But I'd say you probably should pray. There's, like a, there's, there's so many questions that come up. Like, would God have done this if I didn't pray for and ask for this? I don't know. But I'm, you did pray for it, and God did answer it. I don't know. So, like, we get sometimes so bizarre and so weird about it, but there is, God is basically looking for people to pray and call upon him. We're told that. He's like, pray, call upon me, and I'll answer. We serve a God who's like, I want you to. I'm asking you to. I'm inviting you to. And in fact, maybe he wouldn't have responded that way in that time or with that person. It could be like that, that uh, the Esther story. God's going to save us, and it can be through you. And if you're not willing, then God will save us another way. But if you pray, you get to, you get to be used and be part of that. That is a beautiful thing. I'd say pray, be a part of it. Listen, prayer does work. Remember who it is you're coming, coming to. This God you have has said with, this covenantal love with the steadfast love with, the God who entered into covenant with you and he still wants you to come to him. Prayer absolutely works. This is what Dallas Willard says. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely prof profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. It's sad. Sometimes you go, does it really work? Don't even ask that. God invites you to it. Of course it does, but God invites you to it. You get to be a part of it, participate in it. By the way, I want to point this out because this is, this is maybe something we never made the connection. After he's done praying, okay, you get chapter nine, the Lord's going to respond. This same story, just, just so you can kind of follow along with me, this same story, 1 Kings 8, is also seen in 2 Chronicles 6 and 2 Chronicles 7. Same story. Stay with me. So something we quote a lot is 2 Chronicles 7.14, but we don't quote the context of it, which is this context. So let me just kind of catch up to speed. Second Chronicles 7, verse 12, it says this fast enough. It says, God says, I have heard your prayer. So Solomon prays. Second Chronicles 7, God's like, I heard you. 
By the way, so does God hear a prayer? Yes. He hears. He's like, Solomon, I heard your prayer. Here's what God says in 2 Chronicles 7.14, a verse we know well, and this is the context. God says in 2 Chronicles 7.14, he says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This verse that's like thrown everywhere, I feel like. It's just like thrown, oh, do you know if you, you know, our, our nation, whatever. It's like thrown everywhere. It's in context to this in 1 Kings 8. Where, God, where Solomon's like, God, don't forget us when we're held captive. Don't, hey, God's like, I, I hear you. And God actually answers Solomon. You know what? If your people actually will pray and seek my face and repent, I'll bring them into the land. I'll heal, heal their land. You better believe what you prayed for will come to pass. And I love that. Because think about this. If this applied to them under the old covenant, how much more for us under the better new covenant in Jesus? We are under a better new covenant. The, the book of Hebrews calls this a better covenant. If God's like, I hear this, I hear you, Solomon, how much more we're praying in Jesus' name, God goes, I hear you. Hey, if if my people will humble themselves and seek me and call upon me, I hear. I hear you. I believe the Lord hears. How much more in Jesus, the better covenant, do we know that God hears? He's like, I hear you. Pray according to his will. Pray scripture. Pray in his name. What his name means, what it brings. This is absolutely beautiful. I'll close with this quote. Richard Foster says, we are working with God to determine the outcome of things. It needs to be said reverently, but it does need to be said. We are co-creators with God in advancing his kingdom upon the earth. It needs to be understood. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's not just an invitation, God, you, but it's like, God, I want to partner with you. I want to partner with you in being a co-creator of this kingdom. God, you might not have moved or saved, how many revivals would not have happened if the church was not praying? How many revivals would have happened if the church was praying? There's something about us working with God on this. Church, we must be a praying people. Yes? Amen? Can we just do this? We're going to worship. We're going to have a couple people up here for prayer. If you want to pray with them, great. Please. What about anything, everything? Come boldly to the throne of grace. If you want to pray in your seat, we're just going to turn this in time of worship and prayer. Kind of do what Solomon did. Can we do that? Let's just end with some worship and prayer. Father God, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. Lord, help us to really know right now, even as I'm talking, who it is we're talking to, that you are the God of the universe, that you are the name above all names, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that you rule and reign, you are sovereign, you're over it all, that you dwell in light unapproachable. God, that you are merciful and good and loving and patient. And we just come to you and just ask God for your grace. I need your grace, Lord. God, would you just forgive us, show us mercy. God, we, yes, we want justice, but we want mercy, Lord. God, we come to you and we just ask that you would speak and you would move and that we would believe again. God, you said, I hear, I hear you, Solomon. Lord, I believe that you hear and so we, we need you. We call upon you, God. God, restore marriages, relationships, bring new life for those who don't yet believe in you. Let them know that you are in their midst, that you love them, you made them, that there would be people who turn from death to life because there's power in the name of Jesus. And so we look to you now and praise you now in your wonderful name. Amen. Guys, let's just stand and close out with worship and prayer. Again, if you want prayer, we have our deacons up here. We'd love to pray with you guys.